Hi listeners and welcome to our special coronavirus series of Reasonable and Necessary. I'm your host, Dr. George Tomaforis, and on today's episode, we're talking to Professor Anne Kavanagh about the coronavirus, how to avoid it, and what the government needs to do to help people with disabilities stay safe. We had a great reaction to our first podcast last week. Thanks so much, everyone, for your support that's been coming through on social media. On today's episode, we want to go deeper into understanding the coronavirus. We know that people with disabilities are at a higher risk than most, so let's talk about why and what we can all do about it. But please remember, we're not here to provide medical advice. Talk to your doctor for that, or call the Coronavirus Info Line on 1-800-020-080. Joining me now is Anne Kavanagh, Professor of Disability and Health at the University of Melbourne. She has a disability herself and a family member with a disability. Hi Anne, thanks for joining us. Hi George, a pleasure to join you. And can I just start with understanding the coronavirus itself? Can you tell us what is this virus and how do you pass it on from person to person? Okay, well... um... COVID-19 is just the name of a virus, which is the same kind of virus that causes the common cold. It's called a coronavirus. But we've never never had this virus in our community before. So people haven't haven't got any immunity to it. Um, And it's a a virus that causes some quite nasty symptoms uh, and sometimes death. And you get it through being in contact with someone who's already got the virus, although they may not be showing symptoms at that time, or if someone sneezes or coughs into your face, which is why you need to be about 1.5 metre distance from that person, or if you touch things, objects or services like doorknobs or tables where someone else has coughed or sneezed on them and what we call droplets, are on them. Those are just the fluid that that people project when they uh, cough or sneeze. And then if you touch those surfaces and then touch your mouth or your face, then you can also become infected. So the things I guess that you can do to prevent transmission of the infection are really, really important. So if someone coughs or sneezes, making sure that you sneeze into an elbow or a tissue rather than your hand and you just put it, you put those tissues straight into a bin. Washing your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds or happy birthday twice, um, including before and after you eat. Or you, if, you, if you can't do that for some reason using a alcohol-based sanitizer to try not to touch your eyes, nose or mouth and to make sure you clean surfaces such as bench tops, desks, doorknobs 
And really importantly, I think people forget this, but also to clean mobile phones and keys, wallets and so forth, objects, remote controls that you touch frequently or other people in your house might touch. Yeah, you always need to be a bit of a private investigator, don't you, and think about what are all the things that I've touched since I entered the room and then think, you know, how do I not touch my face? And it all becomes a bit overwhelming sometimes, but it's very important that we... uh, that we wash our hands very frequently and then think about what have I touched since I washed my hands? And, I know. And, and think about it that way. Yeah. Someone said, think about the fact that you're at any time at risk of getting the infection or of transmitting the infection to someone else. And if you behave like those two things in mind, then uh, you'll, you'll remember to do all those things. <laughs> but it is hard. Um, it is very hard. It is hard, and it can help by having um, putting signs up on the wall to mm. remind yourself. You can even have a, um, uh, uh, an alarm on your phone that goes off yes. every two hours to remind you to, um, to clean your hands. There's different um, strategies that people can implement to, to help them. And I think if you... If you need that support, then, you know, you, you should definitely um, receive it in terms of the, the pumping and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd like to just talk a bit about um, disability and the virus. We know that people with disabilities are going to be affected quite seriously um, but people with different disabilities face different challenges when it comes to dealing with the coronavirus, and you've written about this. Can you tell us a bit more about how different disabilities are, are affected differently? Yeah. So I guess there are people who might have, Um, say, a physical disability and and perhaps an underlying um, health condition associated with that that puts them at particular risk. And people I'm thinking about here are people with high spinal cord injuries and some people with cerebral palsy who have um, respiratory difficulties with breathing. Um, And so if there's an issue where they get a respiratory virus that affects their lungs, then they're at significant much higher risk than the rest of the community of that being very serious. There's also issues around people with intellectual and cognitive disabilities who just trying to understand the kind of information that's given, um, making sure it's accessible and making sure that um, health practitioners don't discriminate against them and this I guess uh, relates to all people with disabilities in accessing um, treatment, um, testing and care, um, particularly in the hospital setting. So I think that discrimination is really important. But the other issue that places people with disabilities at risk are people who have high support needs and that includes um, people with physical disabilities and people with intellectual disabilities and potentially mental health problems who require people to come into the home to help them with 
uh, system with daily living tasks. And that means they can be more exposed to the infection because they might have multiple workers coming in um, and those workers mightn't have access to equipment that would help prevent transmission. Uh, so th they're basically not able to do what the government asks us to do, um, which is to distance um, oneself as much as possible um, from people that don't live in our in our homes. So we've we've had that issue in our situation where we're still continuing to have support workers in the home um, and 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 trying to work out ways that we can protect ourselves as much as possible. But that is tricky. Yeah, that's very tricky. It is tricky. I know that um, your, your son has a disability. Yeah. Uh, has, has, have you um, implemented some, some strategies around that? Well, yes, um, being who I am, I wrote a um, hygiene uh, protocol for everyone in our, who comes into our household, including us, but anyone who comes in who around, you know, as soon as they come in, what they have to do um, in terms of washing their hands, what we expect um, in terms of cleaning any surfaces they touch, also our regime at home in terms of trying to um, clean uh, commonly touched objects um, and uh, but but the hardest thing is um, with my son is um, helping him understand um, or or actually getting him to implement just basic hygiene strategies like washing um, washing his hands frequently, not touching his face, um, not um, maybe uh, licking something that he shouldn't lick. Um, those kinds of things and um, one thing that's fortunate for us is he does like alcohol or hand sanitizer so but the problem is that that's in short supply so um, we keep trying to source more hand sanitizer so he can regularly use it on his hands yes not not in his mouth no <laughs> yeah I, I hear it's a, it's a good way to um, you know <laughs> Enjoy yourself on a Friday night. Just take a <laughs> yeah. Well, it does. It does like the smell of it. That's for sure. <laughs> um. So, and I'm thinking also about people who have an acquired brain injury, and they may have um some issues around impulse control or around um memory. These things can be quite challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely, I think um, that's why in that situation people around them need to be able to, as much as possible, implement those strategies around them. Um, but it is incredibly difficult. One of the things that we've been worried about is um, uh, for some people this massive, for all of us it's really hard, this massive um, disruption of routines, but even so, more so for some people with, say, behaviours of concern who may, or or other issues where physical activity or being outside is really important part of them regulating themselves. Um, 
and coping with the enormity of life and now suddenly we're all having to to live close together and and that can that can feel really overwhelming and I guess we've been a little bit worried about um while we understand to some extent the police um, policing but we are really do worry about um that 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 this isn't directed at people that for whom uh, some of these behaviours maybe maybe more social distancing behaviours might be more difficult, um, and we don't want to see adverse effects of that policing as we have many times among uh, people, particularly with intellectual disabilities and behaviours of concern. Yes, that that that's definitely something that we need to. Yeah, advocate on and make sure that people aren't uh, discriminated against or treated badly. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm interested um, in the advocacy work that you've been doing. I know that Melbourne University has taken a very proactive role and your your centre in particular. What, what, are you, what are you calling on the government to do? What are some of the the key things that you think the health system and the government needs to be doing right now? Well, I'll just take one step back from that, George, and I'll just say now more than ever what we've seen is the fact that um, the disability sector and the health sector don't work very well together. (laughs) And um, this has been one of the tricky things and I think sets us aside from the aged care sector where there is more collaboration with the health system. So really what we're trying to do is upskill a health system in disability and a disability system in health. So what sorts of things would I like government to do? There are so many things. Um, But in terms of um, thinking about the disability services at the moment, so calling on organisations like the National Disability Insurance Agency and the National Quality and Safeguarding Commission is I think we need to ensure that services don't start to withdraw care and there's some examples of that happening already where services are withdrawing care um, for people who have uh, relatively high support needs uh, because they don't want to place their staff at risk. Um, I think we need to make sure that uh, uh, as much as possible um, protective, um, uh, personal protective equipment, that's hair, gloves and masks, um, are delivered to the workforce so that they don't either get uh, catch the virus or um, pass that on. I think we need to make sure that from the government's perspective that disability care services are considered essential services. They're not currently listed in many of the state government's essential services. I choose to believe that's an oversight because it's being run done on the, uh, the run, but we need to make sure that they are listed as essential services don't, don't suddenly shut down. And I think we need to develop some standby capacity in the workforce should we need it if um, the workforce becomes um, sick for some reason or has to care for their own children in the home, that we need to have readily available some uh, workers like allied health workers who could step up and, and do do that work if need be. Um, in terms of the health 
um, workforce. I think health, we, we really need to ensure accessibility at all levels. That's from the kind of information we give, easy read, making sure Auslan interpreters available at um, press conferences and so forth. But we also need to... Uh, we also need to make sure that health services themselves are available uh, if people are going for testing, that they're accessible to go to testing. I think um, it's really important now for healthcare workers to follow some guidelines developed by the sector and with people with skills and health professions who work with people with disabilities so guidelines can be given at every point from if someone rings up asking for information to uh, recommendations for prevention to treatment um, and to guide decision-making in the hospital system. One of the things that we've asked government to think about is to develop what we are calling COVID-19 plans, um, which would look at the COVID-19 pathway from prevention to testing and treatment for people who um, have uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities and or some sort of uh, uh, physical disability or other that puts them in a situation where they have high support needs or comorbid conditions that mean that they are at risk if they become infected. So from that, that would start from how do we make sure we can protect you from being infected as much as possible? What happens if you think you've got symptoms and need to be tested and, and there are ways in which you can test in the home and that's coming up with new skin prick tests and so forth that are likely to be rolled out through to what happens if you need to go to hospital and are needing treatment. So I think um, developing those plans so they're well worked out before anything happens I think would be really critical. So we're We've recommended that to government. But I think probably almost the most important thing of all is to make sure that we have a voice um, of people with disabilities, of people who are healthcare professionals who work with people with disabilities, potentially academics, to work and advocates to work very closely with the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee, which reports to the National Cabinet, now the National Cabinet being all the, the Prime Minister and all the Premiers of each of the states. Um, and that means that we can then make sure at every point along the government's pathways and decisions that they... Um, that the concerns and voices of people with disabilities are not just heard, but policy is rapidly made to make sure that they are not at risk, um, undue risk in this uh, pandemic. These are incredibly important things that you've raised. Thank you, Anne, for doing what you're doing. Please keep up the fantastic work. Yeah, thank you. It's lovely to talk to you, George. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. Check out our Facebook page for all previous podcasts and transcripts. We also love hearing from you, so please leave your comments and suggestions for future episodes. 
Remember, for the most up-to-date info on the coronavirus, call the Coronavirus Helpline on 1-800-020-080 or visit health.gov.au. Stay tuned for our next episode where we go live to New York City to learn from disability activists about what it's like to live with a disability in the centre of the coronavirus pandemic. In the meantime, stay safe and please remember to wash your hands.